Let's pray. Father God, giver of all good things, you've blessed us in Christ with eternal life and membership in the family of God. And even beyond this, you meet the needs of our daily bread and so much more. Cause us to be a people who receive your gifts with joy and delight in the same kind of generosity and hospitality that you show to us. Bless our gifts and our hearts in giving. And as we read and hear your word this morning, help us to receive it also as a gift. To our hearing, bring understanding. To our understanding, bring belief, repentance, and joy. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. We're not in Romans uh, today. Uh, We're going to take a break and instead take up an event in the life of Jesus right after Palm Sunday. Uh, So we'll read two accounts of this, first Matthew uh, and then Mark. So here from Matthew 21. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And then from Mark's gospel in chapter 11. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And together we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Well, it was nap time in my house. This was when the twins were one, perhaps. They were still in diapers. And normally, when they wake up, you know when they wake up, because they are crying and they want to get out of their cribs. One day, I noticed that they woke up and was, were not crying. They were giggling. Uh, and this made me happy because I could finish other things. But enough time had passed and enough giggling had happened that I became very suspicious of what was happening. <clears throat> so I went into the room, opened the door, and became immediately horrified. They were coloring on the walls. Now, I had not left them any paint or markers or crayons. That's right, dear friends. They had produced their own coloring supplies and were reaching back into their diapers whenever they needed to replenish their color. So I walked into this room in shock. I had put them down for a nap. The walls had been clean, and then I walked away. And I had a couple of thoughts when I walked into the room. The first is that we need to move. 
And the second was the realization that I was going to have to clean this up. They were not going to do it. I must do the work of restoring what had been violated and contaminated. I hope you can see where I'm going with this. Now, when Jesus enters his father's house, he has a similar reaction, though his is far holier than mine was. And so we have to ask the question of the text, why does Jesus behave this way in his father's house? Because this story is not necessarily about money or livestock. Jesus is judging wayward worship and hinting toward a new way of worship in a new kind of temple. He is restoring a correct vision of worship in his father's house and bringing judgment on the contaminated way. And what he chooses to quote, the two Old Testament quotes, makes all the difference for us. So, to understand his actions, let's look at how the Jerusalem temple would have operated at that time. The temple complex was the beating heart of religious life in Jerusalem. It was actually the center of all parts of life for God's people at that time. All worship, politics, culture, even academics and nationhood flowed in and through the temple. And it was a large temple. It could accommodate nearly a half a million people or more at peak festival times. It took up nearly a quarter of all the space in the city of Jerusalem. The physical structure was massive. The outer walls protected about 144 square meters, about 33 acres or 30 football fields, and other measurements as well. And the biggest part of this was called the Court of the Gentiles. It took up nearly half the space. It could hold a few hundred thousand people at one time. And it was for anyone. If you wanted to hear about God, if you wanted to take in a sermon, ask questions, hear a lecture, or simply observe what God was about and what his people did there, you were welcome in the court of the Gentiles. Further in, what was called, it was what was called the court of the women. And this was for men and women, though women were not allowed further. Beyond that was called the court of the Israelites, smaller still. And this is for ritually pure Jewish men. The smallest part was the court of the priests, where the priestly tribes operated and where the altar extended into the court of the Israelites. And then the smallest space, the smallest building, was the Holy of Holies. Nobody entered except for the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. So if you were a good Jewish man at the time, you have raised a sacrifice This ranges from a dove for the poorest people all the way up to a bull for the richest people, but most often somewhere in between, a goat or a lamb. You have raised this. You have rid your house of yeast, which is a metaphor for being puffed up with pride and sin. You have transported the animal all the way to the temple without bruising it or causing a blemish. When you get there, you'll pay a temple tax a small amount of money to support the Levites who worked in the temple. They were not allowed to earn money in other traditional ways. And when your turn arrived, you would approach the priest. Together, 
you would lay hands on the animal, you would name your sins and the sins of your family, confessing them and symbolically transferring them to the animal. And you will watch as the animal that you brought is killed, the blood is sprinkled onto the altar, the animal is halved and then quartered and then burned on that altar. And you will watch the smoke go up, you will smell the smoke go up, and you will trust that God has accepted your sacrifice for sin in your place, and that, it's a, and that it's a sweet-smelling sacrifice, and then you will leave in joy and delight that something has been taken the judgment for you. At least this is how it was supposed to work in those days. And at each step, the people of God are reminded that their sins are real, and that they must be considered serious offenses against a holy and pure judge. And no one is good enough to neglect this practice of atonement, not even the priests, because all have sinned. So what does Jesus find so detestable and out of place when he enters the temple? Well, first, The behavior of the vendors reveals the hearts of the priests and of the people. And we'll start with the upcharging for the sacrificial animals. See, the head of the household was supposed to transport, to bring the animal himself. And in traveling those miles, he's supposed to remember that sin is serious. Any misstep and the animal gets bruised or a broken leg and he might have to start over. So this is an embodied habit. It's supposed to remind you that atonement is costly and personal and even brutal. But by the time Jesus arrives at the temple, you could avoid all of this. Is it inconvenient to bring your own sacrifice? You can just buy one here. We have livestock salesmen ready to accommodate you. Now, by the way, We're going to charge you up to 20 times more to buy one on site, like airport food. And by the way, when you get here with yours, we're going to have our own inspectors look over your animal to see if we can find something wrong with it. And by the way, they'll probably find something wrong with it. And they will direct you to one of our own livestock salesmen. And there might be a kickback. See, the priests are setting a bad example, and the worshipers are only too happy to go along with it for convenience. And this weakens both the seriousness of sin, and it cheapens the joy and delight in being forgiven. But it's not just price gouging on the animals. There's also upcharging for the money changing. Because, by the way, there's a temple tax that's three times the normal price at peak times which is any time you'd want to go to the temple. And by the way, you can't use your own coins to pay this temple tax. Your coins have the image of Caesar or some other emperor, and they're no good at the temple. Uh, So you'll have to change them in for temple coins. By the way, the exchange rate is heavily in the temple's favor, not yours. And here again is the consistent problem. The services offered by the temple priests and officials were often not in the best interest of God's people and not in line with the purpose of the temple. 
Now, I should say it wasn't wrong to keep money or animals near the temple. The treasury was kept at the temple, especially for emergency situations and for the poor and for the widows. Animals were kept near the temple to provide sacrifices for those who couldn't raise them or for those whose animals didn't make the journey safely. It was a fail-safe for those who were out of options. But it was their hearts that were wrong. Or you could say it wasn't the coins or the cattle, it was the character. Or you could say it wasn't the shekels or the sheep, but the shape of their hearts. But there's more. The locations of these vendors revealed the spiritual apathy of the priests. See, earlier, either the high priest Annas or his son-in-law Caiaphas, whose name you will come across later in the week if you keep reading, they'd recently relocated the whole livestock trade from down in the nearby Kidron Valley to the temple. And this was tremendously profitable for them. The problem is that the livestock vendors set up in the court of the Gentiles. This is an uh uh-oh, and it reveals the hearts of the high priests and what matters to the officials at the temple. What does this say about their view of the Gentiles? It's not important to include them. It's not important to follow God's intentions for the temple. We think of them like cattle anyway, why not just group them together? But there's even more. Merchants, even merchants that had no connection to the temple, often used those courts as a shortcut. Remember that this temple complex was massive. And if you get a space that's at least 30 football fields in the middle of Jerusalem, you're going to want to cut through it. It was a massive inconvenience to everyone who lived in Jerusalem. It was an obstacle that forced you to go around it. Much like, perhaps, living in a university town when you have to go to the other corner. And so cutting through the outer courts was a common practice for all people who lived in Jerusalem. Now, if you're a visitor to the temple and you are observing, what sort of things do you learn about God And do you learn about the people of God? Well, you might learn that God seems very interested in efficiency above other things. You might learn that God intended a large space for those who are outside the faith to come and learn and come and hear, but he must not really care about them because his people have filled that space with livestock and money changers. You might learn that the wealthy get to skip all the inconvenient parts. And you might learn that a person's heart doesn't necessarily need to be repentant or even serious about atonement because many of the worshipers don't seem to take it very seriously. In their minds, as long as the assembly line ends in a sacrifice, it doesn't matter how you get there. So now do we see We see why Jesus takes action. The good things at the temple have become contaminated and corrupted. You're supposed to be able to hear the truth about God, life, death, 
sin, atonement, mercy, covenant. You're supposed to bring in the nations to receive forgiveness and rest. And the very people that are the most unwanted and ignored at the temple may be the people who need to be brought in. And because it's God's house, it becomes Jesus's mission to judge it and to reform it. He's already said back in Matthew 12 that something greater than the temple is here. He was talking about himself. So he has the right to pronounce judgment. Worship would need to be purified. And soon, because the day of the Lord was at hand and his kingdom was coming. So what does Jesus do? He begins to decontaminate the house of God. And we don't know the scope of this, but we do know that he wasn't arrested for it yet. This was Monday of his final week. The people were still on his side, and so the officials would be hesitant to move against him. And so we don't know how much of that court he was able to clear out, but we're told that he drove out the vendors. He overturned the tables of the money changers. He overturned the seats of those who sold pigeons. People are definitely upset. A ruckus like this, even in the outer courts, would disrupt the whole machinery and the timing of all the other activities. He has stopped the assembly line. And even if this didn't last more than a day, his judgment mattered and would have been noticed. And it would have been a significant contributor to his death later in the week. And what does Jesus say? Well, he probably says a lot during this time, but the gospel writers make sure to include two quotes. The first is from Isaiah 56, chapter 7 and 8. And this is a prophecy about the day of salvation. It's talking about foreigners and eunuchs who were excluded from assembling with Israel would now be included when the day of salvation comes. Their sacrifices and their offerings would be accepted one day on the same altar as the Israelite offerings. Let me read these verses, just listen. These, the foreigners and the eunuchs, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. The second quote is from Jeremiah chapter seven, and this is a prediction that God's people will misuse the temple. The word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah's mouth and accuses the people of committing evil and then running to hide in the temple as a hideout, thinking that they would be safe. He says some people will use the temple of God as a lucky charm, thinking that this holy space somehow protects them regardless of their actions and their motives. And so Jeremiah asks, has this house which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes. And so in quoting these passages, Jesus is making it abundantly clear what he thinks about the temple activities. He equates the misuse of the Gentile courts with neglecting the mission of the house of God. How can God's house be for all nations 
if the nations can't come and hear. And Jesus equates the attitudes of the vendors and by extension, the Israelite worshipers with those robbers who think they can do evil and then safely hide in the temple. He says, you think all that matters is the machinery of the temple and that as long as the assembly line of dead animals continues, that nobody's heart needs to be changed and no repentance is necessary. Now imagine, if you will, just the moments after all the livestock and all the vendors had been cleared out. The functions of the temple narrow down Perhaps the priests are still sacrificing on the altar, but the bustle is gone. There's tables, coins, boxes, food, animal dung laying on the ground. One commentator on this passage in a throwaway line imagines that it was messy but clean. I think he's onto something there. The house of God was messy littered with stuff, but it was, for the first time in a long time, clean in its purpose. It was cluttered, but it was pure. And verse 14 in Matthew 21 shows us the beautiful result of all of this. It says, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Now this is enough to make us cry because they were not allowed in the temple. They couldn't go inside the walls, according to 2 Samuel 5. They had been prohibited for fear that they would contaminate the righteous men inside. But now Jesus welcomes them inside without even the pretense of a sacrifice or the temple tax. Now they arrive to receive what only Jesus can give, and Jesus is saying that there are no second-class citizens in the house of God, that all are welcome. And this really is the scandal that the scribes and the Pharisees could not understand, that Christ, in a matter of days, would institute a new temple, a new sacrifice, and a new covenant. Remember, this is Monday of his week. By Friday, the temple would change forever, and by Sunday, it would be obsolete. And this new worship would include people that used to be excluded. And this new temple would be relocated from one physical structure to the bodies of all who believed. The book of Hebrews says that we are the new temple of the Holy Spirit. Christ himself would provide the once and for all sacrifice that atoned for the sins of his people. And he would still call us to sacrifice, not animals, but the sacrifice of our whole lives as sweet-smelling offerings of praise, offerings that are on display, not just to us, but to the whole world. And that we would bear witness, not to a goat or a sheep that released one family from its sin for the year, but to the Lamb of God who can bear the sins of the whole world. So what's the lesson for us here today? Well, Jesus confronts at least two contaminations, probably more, but at least two contaminations of the gospel. The first is 
that only our behaviors matter. We often think that as long as we have the right motions and mechanisms in our Christian lives, that we are pleasing God, that we're doing our job, that we're living in step with the Spirit. How much ink in Scripture is spent on trying to convince us that God cares about the heart far more than our behavior? A sacrifice of praise is still supposed to be a sacrifice, right? If it's pure habit and ritual, or if it's convenient and even leisurely, is this still a sacrifice? The things that are sweet-smelling to God might be things that are far more difficult to us, and we should take that seriously. The second contamination uh, is that God is only interested in certain kinds of people. It's not lost on me when I read this passage uh, that, that I belong to God because the gospel was extended to the Gentiles. I come from Scottish-Irish roots. Uh, I would definitely be one of those people uh, who were straining to hear in the court of the Gentiles over the livestock if I went to the temple at all. I am an heir of this Gentile inclusion, what the Old Testament calls ingrafting, uh, that there is a plant of God and the foreigners have been ingrafted into it. And it's because God's house welcomes all nations that I find myself transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. And so God's invitation to himself extends through us, but then out, just like it was supposed to work in the temple. God is not only interested in one kind of person. And so for us, how are we doing? Examine yourself and let's examine ourselves together. And just like a visitor to the Jerusalem temple could learn what was important to God by watching what happened at the temple, what do people learn, what do people learn when they observe you? the new temple, the new dwelling place of the Lord? Do they see us elevating certain kinds of people or certain kinds of lives? Do they see us purely going through the motions in ritual? Do they see us striving toward convenience and leisure? Now, I have to say, before we pray, that we're about to have a donut hour, and that's okay. Uh, We're not selling them. Please enjoy the bonds of friendship in Christ, and don't flip the tables, but enjoy each other, and as you eat a donut, recognize and display the fruits of the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit are the values that are demonstrated by the new temple, which is all of us. So let's act like it, and we'll ask for God's help. Would you pray with me? So Father God, help us. We are a church that wants to serve you and delight wholeheartedly in you. And yet we are not sufficient 
for these things. Work in our lives and conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, through the strength and through the kindness of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Would you give us eyes to see the lost and the needy? Give us the mind of Christ to discern right from wrong and good from evil so that we may please God instead of men. Give us the words to speak truth and love to the world and the hands to serve them with your hospitality. Only in your power can we move with joy and boldness in this world. And we pray these things in the strong name of Jesus who holds us in himself both now and in the resurrection. Amen.